Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he went and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. For over a month now, we've been looking at the life of David. And the life of David is the longest narrative in ancient literature regarding a single human life. What's the point of looking at one person so intensely and so richly? You know, in the Old Testament, even beginning from Adam and Eve, we see that we learn about God's covenant with man. Starting uh, with, with Adam, Adam ruled as a vice king under God. God said, I want you to rule, subdue the earth. But ever since the sin of Adam, the rule of man has been broken. And man has been searching since then for a king. We see that even today. We're still searching. Because they, we lost our king. And um, the Old Testament is really about that. One of the major themes in the Old Testament is man's search for a king. Because the world is so broken. We're longing for justice. We want personal peace in our lives. We're longing for justice all the time. We're longing for a society with people who'd rather serve others, love one another, rather than use one another. And uh, we're still longing for that. That's why we, on one hand, raise up leaders, and then we're disenchanted by our leaders, and then we tear them down. We're still searching for a true king. We're still searching for a perfect leader, one with justice, one with the heart of God. What does that mean? You know, Saul, King Saul, was supposed to be that king with God's heart. He was supposed to be the king after God's heart. 
And what that means is he uses power differently than the way God uses power. Um, he was, he's supposed to uh, use, different, uh, sorry, the way God uses power. He, he uses power different than other kings in the world, but uh, the way he exacts justice, the way he um, preserves his kingdom. But instead, Saul became a person who was really into self-preservation. He was into self-profit. And he became a man of injustice. And we saw that sin was twisting him and ruining him. And in this passage, God chose to come to Samuel, who's really grieving. He's mourning. He's in despair. Why is he in despair? Samuel's in despair because Samuel, he envisioned, he had the vision of a real king, a true king, one that reflects the heart of God, who's going to lift up the poor, who's going to lift up the needy. He's going to put them on his own throne and share the throne with his own people. But from the top, he saw Saul, this person he had tremendous faith in, and he saw the corruption, and he saw the twistedness. Remember Star Wars, the third movie? It's like, you know, people look at the, the second three, which was the, the original three as, you know, the, the trilogy. Then the third, the, you know, the uh, three movies that came later, kind of like um, an afterthought. But that third one, Revenge of the Sith, remember that towards the end? Anakin Skywalker is finally revealed as Darth Vader, right? And he's, he's kind of, his evil has taken over his life. And, and Obi-Wan Kenobi in that you know, fiery pit, what does he say? He screams out. He says, you were the chosen one. You were supposed to be the chosen one. And he's grieving at the end. You see that. That's what's going on here. Saul was supposed to be the chosen one. He was anointed in that way. But he turned out like everybody else, twisted by evil, twisted by sin. And Samuel is grieving. He's saying there's no one trustworthy. If Saul isn't that guy, who could be out there? No one trustworthy. But then God comes to Samuel. And he says, there is somebody. I've chosen somebody. What does that mean? Who is that? There are four things that we're going to learn today about the heart of a king. Kingly character. The importance of character. The impossibility of of character, the price of character, and how do you get it? How do you get character? The importance of character, the impossibility of character, the price of character, and how do you get it? How you get real character, kingly character. First, the importance of character. This is the longest point, okay? The importance of character. Um, In chapter 15, verse 11, God tells Samuel that he rejected Saul as his king. And we see that Samuel is up all night. He's crying. And it brings us to chapter 16, verse 1. He's still grieving. And he's like, he's mourning. He's like grieving and grieving and grieving. He's over grieving. And it takes God to wake him out of his grieving. He says, how long, Samuel, will you grieve? God comes to Samuel and he says, be on your way. Go. I'm going to give you someone else. In verse 1, he says, I've provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons, among his sons. Literally in Hebrew, what that means is, he says, I've seen myself a king. You know, we use that phrase. We don't use it often. If you remember the movie Good Will Hunting, he says, I have to go see about a girl. What, we're, what he's saying here is, I've arranged for it. I've arranged for a king. God himself has chosen and arranged for a king. And we get to verse 6 and 7. It's really the central part of this entire passage. And I'm going to read it, actually, because it is so central to what we're talking about today. When they arrived, Samuel, Samuel arrives, 
Samuel saw Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's the center of the text. What's all this about? You know, he's saying, Samuel, your eyes, I know what you're looking at, and your eyes are misdirected. There's that motif throughout this text. It's about seeing. I have to go, I've seen myself a king. I have to see about a king. The Lord sees. Man looks at appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. There's this motif here all about seeing. And what he's really saying is, you, Samuel, are being misdirected. You're blind. That's what he's saying. You know what a magician does? A magician masters the art of getting you to pay full attention to one thing while the other hand is doing something else that's going to actually reveal. He's misdirecting you. It's the art of misdirection. He's saying, Samuel, you are tricked. Your eyes have been misdirected. Magicians master the art of getting your attention into something inconsequential, ultimately, so that the hand is actually pulling the trick, the other hand. It forces you to be blind. It forces you to be fooled. You don't see reality. You don't see truth. You don't focus on what is actually really important. God is saying to Samuel, you, the entire human race, you're obsessed with things that are not real. You're obsessed with things that are not reality. Just because they're material, it doesn't mean they're real. Eliab comes by, Samuel sees his height. That's why he says, he, you know, God fixates on the height here. You know, he, uh, Samuel, Eliab comes by, Samuel's fixated on his height, and he says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Even though he's, remember, just a chapter before, he's grieving because of Saul. Saul was tall. He's making the same mistake. He was so disappointed by Saul, and yet in the same breath, in the same chapter, Eliab comes by, he's about to make the same mistake. He's intoxicated by Eliab's appearance and his height. Now, why the fixation on being tall? To be tall, especially to be tall like that, is to be kingly, it's to be attractive. To be tossed, to be impressive in that ancient times. But it's not just about physical attractiveness because if you're taller, you're stronger. A king needs to be strong. A king needs to be powerful. A king needs to have an imposing, uh, you know, opposing uh, stature in front of other people. He was impressive. And so when Samuel says, wow, he is tall, he's referring to the potential of kingliness. He's referring to, wow, Eliab must have gifts. He must be strong. He must be powerful. This man must have skills. God says to Samuel, it's a trap of the heart. You're getting drunk on a person's outer appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. That's what he says. Character is reality. Character is truth. Your physical appearance That person's smoothness of character, the personality, I mean, their intelligence, their talent, their success, their money, their wealth, it's unimportant. It's not reality. It's not native to the person. It's not organic to the person. But we are so obsessed with how a person looks. And it blinds us. Think about it. When you have student council in seventh grade or sixth grade, it starts in sixth grade, makes its way up. When you nominate people for student council, who do you nominate? Who do you look to? It's the person with the best personality. It's the person who's the tallest. It's the person who is the brightest, 
right? You're looking for the combination because you think that's the criteria for success. That's the criteria for good uh, leadership. Now, if you think about it, do you see the importance of character here? Character is way more important, infinitely more important than the external. Man looks at the outer qualities, but not God. That's what God says here. The physical appearance is not reality. It's not who you are. We live in a society, and we live in a culture that's just bombarded with images, images of physical beauty, images of um, sharpness, images of uh, just imposing figures in our lives, whether it's sports figures or models. No matter who you are, you can't help but make make comparisons with other people, and it's corrosive to our soul. It's absolutely corrosive. I'm going to give you a few examples. Number one, the pornography industry, the makeup industry, the fashion industry. Most industries, actually, any type of industry capitalizes on this, on the fact that we are obsessed with the shape and the quality of the outer, the exterior, rather than character. And it's ki- number one, it's killing our women. It's killing the women because it's destroying their self-image. Second example, everyone in, in culture uh, practically does dating the way Jesse does it. Jesse, the father of David. What do I mean by that? Jesse... He knew that one of his sons were going to become king. So what does he do? He brings, in his mind, the best son first, Eliab, right? Physically impressive. He's attractive. He's gifted. He's the most gifted son. He's going to bring him forward first. It's not Eliab. Then he brings the second one. Then he brings the third one. David is completely forgotten. He's completely left out. That's how Jesse would do dating, Here's how we do dating, okay? Now, I heard this from another preacher, but I totally, I absolutely, you would agree with me, okay? If you're single, take 10 members of the opposite gender. Just envision 10 people of the opposite gender, right? And uh, what do we do? We, we exclude the ones who are unpolished. We exclude the ones that are unattractive. We exclude the ones that we think uh, personality doesn't match well, right? We exclude the ones who are not very successful, we try to, you know, we put aside the ones who, uh, you know, don't have that type of outer criteria that we admire in people, you know, the ones that look less impressive. And then the ones that are left, we just hope, we just absolutely hope that they have good gospel character. That's what we do. That's exactly what we do. We take 10 people and we eliminate all the ones who have bad outer qualities. And then we say, ah, this remaining group of people, probably like two of them or three of them, we just hope to God that they have, that they know God. That's what we say. And, we, and you know, I'll, I'll show you the inverse of that. We say, we're always impressed by a person's intelligence. We're always impressed by their athletic ability. We're impressed by their physical appearance. And then we say, and guess what? And he goes to church. That's what we say. You know, that's what we do. You know what the Bible says about intelligence? If you look at the word intelligence in the Bible, not wisdom, intelligence, it's never looked in a good light. All the times the word intelligence is brought up and referring to man, it's almost never brought up in a positive light. And yet we are so obsessed with that. Because you know why? Because intelligence brings us certain types of capital, social capital, right? Smart, then they rise up the ranks. You know, corporate capital, human capital, right? Um, You know, generally intelligent people can manage people, right? But then we also have the capability, the possibility, the potential of wealth, tremendous wealth. We're obsessed with that. And if you do that, if that's the way you date, if that's the way you look at your leaders, 
What do you learn from this? It, the text, this text tells you that the chances of you missing the real king in your life is very, very high. That you've just eliminated him is really, really high. Why? It's because we've been misdirected. We are victims of self-deception and misdirection. Okay, third example. Just two more examples. When you're on a date, all right, now you found this person. When you're on a date, what do we do? You, we're all magicians. We're all magicians at work. Because what we do is we misdirect from our true character. And what do you do? You put on your best clothing. You put on your best face, right? You put on your best personality. You're going to act your best. You're going to look your best. You're going to talk about what? Your character? No, you're going to talk about all your your accomplishments, the things that you're passionate about, the things that inspire and move people, the things that you know, because magicians know what people look for. We're all magicians. That's what we do. We misdirect. We try to sound sophisticated. Um, And all that is unreal. It's all unreal. We never talk about true character. We never talk about the real you because we're afraid. We're afraid if they just know, if they know even the slightest bit of who I really am, they would reject me. You know, because there's so many better choices out there. We're constantly comparing ourselves with other people. Character is so far greater than gifts and talent. And the last one, very quick one, we live in a city. We live in one of the largest cities in this country. And that means whenever you have that many people together in one area, the city as a whole is going to put tremendous emphasis on gifts and talents. And then we wonder why. When we focus so much on gifts and talents alone and not on character, we get surprised by the corruption in our government. We get surprised by the corruption in our institutions. And we get so surprised by the scandal. Why? Because it's a product of our own self-deception, our own choices. Let me ask you a question. Look at all the misery that's in the world. You know, war, oppression, all the way down to the broken relationships that we have here in this room. What is the source of that? Do you think the source of that is a lack of talent? Is the source of that a lack of intelligence? Is the source of that a lack of creativity or just a lack of beauty? No, you know that. It's a lack of character. It's a lack of trustworthiness. It's a lack of love character. It's the pride and the selfishness. It's the resentment and the jealousy. It's the uh, covetousness, you know, and the hate, the malice. Yet we don't choose, we don't want to believe when God says nothing matters but character. We're still obsessed with our looks. We're still obsessed with gifts. We look, we look, uh, we look at those things, and, and we, the reason why we look at those things is because if we have those gifts, if we have those looks, we feel important. Because people pay attention to us. And that's the corrosive aspect of it. We become like Saul, twisted by that. It ruins us. We're always going to be comparing ourselves to other people. You know, in your, in your um, bulletins on page one, Madonna, in an article, uh, in an interview with Lynn Hirschberg, who's a, one of the probably famous uh, columnists in Vanity Fair, she says this uh, in an article that was nicknamed or titled uh, The Misfits. I have an iron will. This is Madonna, okay? She has more number one hits than I believe the Beatles, okay? I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. 
I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me and pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. You see the importance of character? How blind we are? Do you have the guts to go to somebody who knows you well in this community, who knows you well? Do you have the guts to ask them, am I an anxious person or somebody that, you look, that looks like he's at peace? Do I look like an angry person or somebody who's content? Am I a vain person in your eyes? Or do you think of me as a modest person? Am I self-absorbed or self-centered instead of like loving? Because I think I'm loving. I think I'm modest. I think I'm pretty content in life. I think I'm at peace. But do I look that way to you? Do I look wise to you? Or do you think of me as a fool? Do you think of me as making foolish decisions in life? Are you willing? Do you have the guts to do that? Do you have the courage to do that? But that's the purpose of community groups, by the way. I mean, if you're doing anything else but that, I don't know what you're doing. That's what we should be doing in our community groups. Now, are you willing to join one to go deeper, to stop talking about theology and, and the things that we're just reading, you know, outside of you know, all the knowledge that we've acquired? Stop talking about the things that are inconsequential in our lives, but actually go deeper. Are you willing to do that? Now, if you're saying, I'd rather not, or actually, I'm afraid to do that, or you know, I'm not ready for that right now, you don't see how God sees. You do not see how God sees. Now, if you don't put this passage in the context of the whole Bible, that's the importance of character. But if you don't put the passage in the whole context of the Bible, um, or at least the rest of David's narrative here in the context of the whole Bible, it's possible to think And I thought about this growing up. This is the way I read this passage. I thought that when God says, no, I don't want Eliab, I don't want any of the other sons, I don't want any of these people as king because I look at the heart, I used to think that it meant, ah, David must have had a good heart and all of Jesse's sons must have had bad hearts. The brothers were bad and David was good. So what God's looking for is a good person, an obedient person to make him king. If that's what you thought, when you read the rest of David's life, you're going to wonder, I don't get it. (laughs) David's not a very good person at times. In fact, he's horrible. In fact, he's not much different than Saul. His record isn't much better than Saul at the end. He does terrible, unspeakable things. So he can't be chosen to be king because he has a better heart. So why does God choose him? It says here, towards the end of the text, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day on. That's the last verse. That's verse 13 in this text. From that day on, the Spirit of God rushed on David, rushed in on David. What does that mean? Does it mean that the Spirit, David was a good man, he was an obedient man, he just needed a little, bit of, a little bit of a push, so the Spirit partnered with him and they kind of worked together in tandem? Is that what it means? Because David's a pretty decent person? No. It said that the Holy Spirit flooded David's life every second of his life for the rest of his life. And he needed that. He needed that. 
And there's several reasons why he needs that. We're going to talk about this. The second point here is that this is the impossibility of character. The Bible says that the human heart naturally is selfish. Naturally is self-absorbed. So if you're sitting here thinking here, I'm pretty selfish. You know, I, don't, I hope nobody sees it, but I'm a pretty selfish person. or I'm pretty self-absorbed. That's natural. That's the natural state of the human heart. And we'll even use God because we'll definitely use other people for our own glory. The natural way of the human heart is not kingly. It is not kingly character. It doesn't embrace justice. Embraces revenge sometimes, but not justice. It only embraces the self. And uh, you know, I'll give you an example. What is kingly character? Kingly character is this. My life sacrificed to serve you. That's true kingly character, the way God designed a king to be. Ungodly character, character that is not kingly, is then your life sacrificed for the sake of me, to serve me. Right? Kingly character is my life for you. Parents would understand this because when you think about your children, you probably understand that. But it goes beyond just your children. It goes to everyone. My life to serve you. Ungodly character is your life is here to serve me. My wants, my pleasure, my desires. The Bible says that this is the way the natural heart operates unless the Holy Spirit actually rushes in, unless God intrudes into your life, unless God intervenes. We are addicts to our own personal glory, and we will use people, we will use God, we will use church, we use anything around us to serve our needs, and we get so disenchanted when they don't serve our needs and we complain and we grumble against people and against a people we do that all the time because it's all about us unless the spirit of god intervenes and not just convicts you and says you are selfish because you know that deep inside most of us probably do if you have an ounce of self-awareness but the holy spirit intervenes and gives power and healing and rest for your soul and then turns that inward view of yourself outwardly. So you become more open to the gospel. You become more open about your sinfulness. You be, why? Because you're healed. As you heal, as the wounds heal, they grow outward, you know, and you become less ashamed. You become more free, and you become more serving. You begin to love people more genuinely. Then people are not in your life to use. God is not in your life to use. You are being used. You're an instrument of, uh, in, God's, in God's service. Now, that's not the way the natural heart operates unless the Holy Spirit intrudes. Jesus says in the book of John, he says, no man comes to the Father, no man comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. And that word draw, no man comes to the, uh, Father unless, uh, uh, to the Son unless the Father draws him, that, is, uh, that word draw is not like a person putting a bucket into a well of water and drawing the bucket up. That word is actually a person going to prison, being forced into prison, and they're fighting you, and they're fighting you, and they're resisting, and you have to draw them in. Because we are so resistant to kingly character. We are so resistant to it. Because if it goes against what we want or what we desire, we're going to resist it. We're going to resist it. And if you ignore this aspect of the teaching, your heart is in tremendous danger. You know, in fact, if you're struggling with why you're not growing, you know, wow, lately I just haven't been growing. I realize this is a really dry period in my life. I'm not growing. If that's you, if you're not spiritually growing, I'm going to argue that most spiritual maturity begins with the fundamental trust 
that you are much worse than you think you are. All the more you need community around you. You need good friends who know truth, the truth of the gospel, to show love and truth to you. It begins, most spiritual maturity begins with the conviction of specific things in your life, fundamentally understandable because you know that at the root of you, there's sin. That the heart is not naturally good. We want to believe that. Come on, but deep inside, I'm a good guy. You want to believe that. Naturally believe that. But when you believe that, the, that you're not that bad, you're never going to change. Think about it. If you don't believe you're not that bad, what is there to change? You're not going to change. If at the root, you don't believe you're all that bad. But if you are convicted, if the Spirit of God has rushed in, if the Spirit of God is present in your life, oh, not only are you going to be convicted, but there is a way. So we see the impossibility of character unless the Spirit of God intrudes. And that's verse 13 here. But thirdly, there's the price of character. Notice, and you're going to notice because we're going to be preaching on this, the minute that the Spirit of God rushes in on David's life, from that point on, David's life is all suffering. Suffering. The next chapter, he stands in front of the giant against the other country, and he has to fight their champion. And then after that, he's got spears being thrown at him by the king because the king is jealous. And then after that, he's, the civil war, because of him, breaks out, and he's hiding in caves, separated from his family. He has no idea how his family is doing. Separated, he's living in caves, living like an animal, running away, because the whole country, the army, is after him. That's David's life. Pretty much the sum of David's life, from, from the moment the Lord enters into his life, is suffering. The Holy Spirit rushes in. Next thing you know, He's running. He's an animal. He's a fugitive. He's away from home. I'm going to challenge you to go through the Bible. And you're going to virtually see, you're going to see that virtually every time the Spirit of God comes on people, what happens immediately? There's suffering. There's persecution. There's jail time. Jesus, you go all the way to Jesus. Jesus, he's being baptized. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. Immediately after, he goes into the wilderness. And he's starving for 40 days. And Satan is tempting him. He's in the wilderness. Anytime the Spirit of God, virtually anytime the Spirit of God comes on people, they're suffering. Think about it. Why is that the case? And the answer is this. The Spirit is not after your looks. The Spirit is not after your gifts. Those things are not real. You are not the sum of your looks. You are not the sum of your gifts. I'm going to say that again because we have a very group of good-looking, talented people here. And it's got to, it takes a while to get through. You are not the sum of your looks. You are not the sum of your gifts. You are not the sum of your success. Those things are not organic to you. you they're not native to you. You are the sum of your character. And the Spirit wants your character. He wants to grow your character. Think about the sum of your wisdom. You go to somebody who's older. Usually, generally, when we look for wisdom, we go to people who are a little bit older than us, who are maybe a different stage of life than us, and we seek wisdom out. Now, why do they, why do they have that honor? If you ask them, where did you gain your wisdom? Most of them, most of the time, will tell you it was during times of suffering and dryness and pain and wilderness when they were connecting by faith in the Spirit. 
and they grew. A lot of times after the suffering subsides, they look back and they realize what they've gained. That's the Spirit of God working in them. What is the price of character? What is the cost of character? It's trouble. It's suffering. It's costly because it's always causing trouble in your life. But it's worth everything. And it's worth your life. Nothing priceless comes cheap. You've heard that before, right? Character is doing the right thing, whether it makes you happy or unhappy. And yet, the irony is that the only way you're ever going to be happy in life is to grow in it. You see? Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 5, in his series of Beatitudes, in his blessings. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Wealth, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? A nice figure, for they will be filled. Well, you wouldn't want to be filled, I suppose, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Character, for they will be filled. Now, keep in mind, suffering doesn't guarantee character. Saul suffered a lot. King Saul, he went through a lot of troubles, lots of suffering, but it only made him harder. It only made him nastier. It only made him more conspiring, more scheming, more devious. It didn't make him sweeter. It didn't make him softer. It didn't make him wiser. It didn't make him humbler. So how do you get it? We're at the last point. How do you get it? How do you get real character? Jesse had eight sons. And he parades each of them, well, seven of them, he parades in front of Samuel. And one by one, is this it? God says, no, passes by. Second one, is this it? No, passes by. And if you notice, there's seven sons that pass by. Samuel enters in, he says, in in the ancient Hebrew, the number seven is a symbol of completeness, perfection. So Samuel, imagine Samuel, he comes into the house and he says, seven sons. One of them is definitely going to be king. This is perfect. This is complete. Yes, one of them. And then God doesn't choose any of them. So he turns to Jesse and he says, um, you know, he's, he says, uh, is this it? Is this it? And here's what he says, verse 11. Jesse says, well, no, there's the youngest the word literally, he doesn't really say, the, the Old Testament that you're reading is very, very kind. That's not actually what he says. The word that he actually uses when he says there is the youngest is a word that combines the youngest in age combined with insignificance. In other words, when Samuel says, uh, is this it? Jesse says, well, no, I mean, there's, there's him. You know, he's not, I didn't think he was worth bringing here, to be honest. That's what he was really saying. I didn't even ask him to come. You know, in fact, Even in the house, he doesn't do chores in the house. He's out with the sheep. Because being with the sheep is dirty, it's brutal, you're in the heat, you know, and um, and you're with animals, right? You're smelly. He's with, he's nobody. I mean, I don't really even know all these years, I don't even know what his gifts are. He's out with the sheep. And Samuel says, I need to see him. He says, nobody's going to take a seat until you bring him here. And he comes in, and God says, this is the one. Now, Robert Alter, liberal commentator, um, but he is a professor, he's a Hebrew literature scholar, probably one of the best Hebrew literature scholars. 
Um, he teaches out of Berkeley. And in his commentary, I'm just going to explain the commentary. Um, mainly what he says is, in this story, you see some motifs. You see a couple common motifs throughout the Bible. It's represented here in this passage. And the first is this, the concept of primogeniture. Primogeniture means that the world always gave the oldest son all the power, all the wealth. Another way of looking at it is, you know, um, the most beautiful woman got all the most powerful men. Um, and, but you see that in every place where God works, this is Robert Alter, he says, but every place in the Bible where God works, he works in a way where he's reversing the world's values. There's always this reversal. So whereas you see here, Jesse prizes the concept of primogeniture, and he parades the sons one by one. God takes that concept and reverses it and says, no, it's going to be the last one. And that's why he always goes with the younger son. It's always Abel, not Cain. It's always Jacob, not Esau. It's always Joseph, not Reuben. It's always Moses, not Aaron. But on top of that, he goes with the unwanted women as well, the ones who are old or barren or unattractive. And as a result, he goes with Sarah. Not, that's, where, that's who's going to bear the seed, the messianic seed, not, not Hagar. It's always going to be Leah, the, the ugly one, not Rachel. It's always going to be Hannah, the barren one, not Penina. God always works with the people who are forgotten. He always works with the people who are left behind. And three, he doesn't just work through them in spite of their weaknesses and flaws. He works through them because of their weaknesses and flaws. You're going to have to get your arms around. He doesn't say, oh, despite his flaws, I'm going to work through him. That's not the way God works. He works actually through their flaws, through their weakness, through their insignificance. He works because of them, because of their insignificance. Now, Robert Alter says, if David had not been forgotten and hadn't been tending to the sheep all these years, he probably never would have learned the skills that he would have needed to defeat Goliath. It's through the insignificance. It's through the weakness, through the forgottenness. When Samuel looks at Eliab, the first time he says, surely this is the one. You know what he says? He says, this is the anointed. Very, very special word. In Hebrew, the word is Messiah. If you take the Greek, Old Te- the Greek version of the Old Testament, there's a Greek, because tra- the Old Testament was, translated in he- was written in Hebrew. If you take the Greek translation of that Old Testament, the word is Christos. Surely this is the Christ. He's looking at David's brothers. In other words, Samuel knows what everybody, every, that everything hinges on. Is this the Christ, the Messiah, the one that God has sent? And it wasn't Eliab. It actually wasn't even David. But David was a pointer. David was a precursor. David was a type of Christ. How do we know that? David was born in Bethlehem. When everybody was looking for a king, David was born in Bethlehem. But he was left tending to the sheep. He was left with the sheep. He was left behind with the sheep and the animals. But there was another child born in Bethlehem when everybody was searching for a king. And he was also left with the sheep. He was born in the manger. And as soon as he was anointed by the Spirit, he was immediately sent into the wilderness, and it was trouble. And for that time on, trouble and danger followed him everywhere. All the way up until the cross, Jesus, he wasn't just forgotten by the Father, right? He was forsaken by the Father, completely rejected. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
the most beautiful, the most worthy person in all creation, Jesus Christ, came to earth unrecognized, lost all his attractiveness. Isaiah 53, in your call to worship, he had nothing attractive about him that we should desire him. The most beautiful person in the entire world lost his beauty so that we who are rejected, spiritually ugly, could be held beautiful in the eyes of God. That's the reversal. The ultimate reversal was perfected by Jesus. And the only way then we could be made acceptable is because Jesus on the cross paid the debt of eternal justice. That's why you don't have to be afraid to be real. Because Jesus already took on the debt. He already paid for that. You're just discovering how real you really are. That's an amazing thing because you see then how much greater. The only way you'll know how beautiful Jesus is is to see how broken and utterly lost sometimes you are. When you see that, then you see how much more. The more broken, the more ugly you see yourself, the more beautiful the gospel becomes. If you don't think the gospel is that pretty, I guarantee you. If you don't think the gospel that Jesus himself is that beautiful to you, if it doesn't strike you, it doesn't thrill you in a way that moves you towards change, I'm telling you, it's because deep inside you don't think you're that bad. You don't think you're all that bad. You don't believe you're all that bad. Jesus took on the real self, the real you, on the cross and gave you the real him, the beauty that he is, the power that he is. That forensic transfer powers us the Spirit now resides in us. When you trust in that, when you put your, to trust in that, to put your life, to put your faith in that, the Spirit has rushed in and is active and present and sanctifying and renewing and changing and transforming you, convicting you of sin, growing you and maturing you in the word of the gospel, making you more like him. Through your sufferings, through your realities, in your brokenness, God is working through your brokenness, through your weakness. It's an amazing thing. He's not demanding that you become perfect right now and successful and accomplished. By the way, that's why we are. We always want to be perfect and successful and accomplished because we think it's a cosmic thing. That's when I get accepted. The acceptance you're looking for, you're not going to find here on earth. The Lord says, I've loved you with an everlasting love because of his great sacrifice of the most beautiful one, his son, be held and rejected so that you could be sons. That's actually written. That's in Galatians chapter 4. That's there. That's a promise. That's the transfer. When you fill your heart with that joy, it's going to melt away your obsession with appearance. It's going to melt away your obsession with beauty. It's going to melt away your obsession with, with uh, you know, whatever it is that your ego craves. And that's when you are free. That's when you can be free. You know, I have a whole litany of applications, but we're not going to go there. We'll, we'll hit that next time we preach on David, okay? The next time we preach on this passage. But I'm just going to close with this. Stop trying to pursue Eliab. We are all trying to be Eliab. When Eliab was passed over, get it. Understand that. Pursue Christ. When you pursue Christ and the beauty that he is and what he has done for you, it will melt you into him. And the word will reveal through the spirit as it rushes in 
It's going to transform your soul. That's what it's going to do. And there's power there. Guys, there, it is not like, whoa, this thing is killing me here today. It is, it is uh, Satan does not want you to hear this. I'm telling you right now, okay? I'm telling you, character. The Lord, when he rushes into your soul, he will not leave you alone. There is constant conviction by the word. What does that mean? You've got to pursue the word. That's why we come to worship. Stop pursuing alive. Stop pursuing alive in a mate. Stop pursuing alive in your children. We're constantly trying to raise our children to be alive. When really we should be raising them up to be like Christ. Character is so much more important than accomplishments and the skills that they learn. They'll learn the skills. They're gifted. They have immense gifts. Things that you will discover and you will love them for. All the more because you see the wonder and amazement of that. But character is something that only God can give through his son. Will you commit to that? When you do that, you will have courage. And that's when you, that kind of courage, that kind of humility, that kind of boldness makes you kingly. That's when God will send. That's, when, that's the type of person that God sends. Somebody who is humble and yet bold. You've got to have courage to get out there. But you also have to be humble to be out there. Or you'll never be received. The gospel doesn't come like just with boldness. It comes with humility. At the same time, the gospel doesn't just come with humility. It comes with courage. Courage to be transformed. And when you have a whole body of people doing that, that changes communities. Will you pray with me? Let's pray.